Well, welcome back everyone to the Whitetail Theories podcast. I am joined again by Grant Fisher, and we have special guest on the mic, the tricky doctor, Dr. Mike Chamberlain. How are you doing, Doc? I'm doing well, guys. How about y'all? Doing good. Nice to be back on. I'm hanging in there. It's been uh, it's been a busy spring so far. Uh, I'm sure it's been busy for you as well. Uh, anything new uh, that you're currently working on, or anything like that? Oh yeah. I mean, we I've got I've got students all over the place, either trapping trapping turkeys or trapping deer. Um, we've got we've got I've got students in four or five states now that are wrapping up their their trapping seasons at least um and now starts the process of if you're in the turkey world of waiting for nesting season to start and if you're in the deer world is is waiting for fawning season to start so uh, it's a busy time of year for everybody that's for sure that's right that's right so uh i guess before we really start uh rolling down the rabbit holes in this podcast uh why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of who you are as a person, uh, how you got into hunting, that kind of, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, See, so yeah, I, I grew up in Virginia. Um, I was kind of the, kind of the suburban kid. My dad owned a, uh, a diesel mechanic. He was basically a diesel mechanic. He, he repaired heavy equipment and he, he worked really hard, but he was he was kind of the weekend warrior, uh, if you will, when it came to hunting. He he worked really hard all week, and he uh, we could only hunt on Saturdays. Uh, Sunday hunting was not allowed, so so we went and spent time in the woods on Saturdays. And um, when hunting seasons went out, we went fishing, you know, on the weekends, and that's how we spent time together. And um, you know, fast forward you know, until I was a teenager, I, I really got into hunting as, as I got to be, I'd say probably 12 to 13. That's when it really kind of took off for me. And, and I hunted everything I could hunt. Um, uh, taking a tape recording and shooting crows was fun. <laughs> um, squirrels, you know, doves, deer, turkeys, any, anything I could go, I could go chase. I went and did it and, um, just, became infatuated with the outdoors kind of did some self self teaching as far as tree identification and plant identification and um learning about animals and reading about basic biology you know i did a lot of that before i ever went to college and um and it just kind of took off from there um fast forward now i'm 50 years old and I've been hunting since I was a kid and it's still just as enjoyable and, and I'm just as passionate about it as I was then. Although my, my perspectives have obviously changed in regards to, you know, what, what's most important to me, um, when it comes to hunting, but, but it's been a part of my life since I can remember being alive. So you kind of had a, a, a unique way of getting into hunting. Um, you kind of hear it as, the situations as far as stereotypical situations you have that that mentor that that guides you into hunting and that's basically how you cut your teeth they teach you the ropes etc etc and you said how your situation was kind of just going out on the weekends until you got a little bit older and you were able to kind of take the ropes into your own hands what was it like uh 
the learning curve and like cutting your teeth uh, from that aspect? Yeah, well, it was it was frustrating at times. Um, you know, my dad, you know, God bless him. He he was a he loved a deer hunt and he loved a small game hunt. Um, as he got older in life, he he got to be a you know a turkey hunter. But growing up, you know, he we were pretty much a small game and deer hunting you know pair, if you will. And and I was interested in all everything associated with hunting. So I I kind of started uh, dovetailing and and going out on my own and and trying to learn things from what I could read in a magazine, you know, um, I had some friends that, that were pretty passionate hunters that, that had some different perspectives and they had family members that, that spent time with them. So we, you know, we obviously as friends spent time together and, and learned from each other. And, and then honestly, guys, I, I just, I just loved being outside and I still do. I, I hate being stuck inside all the time. Ironically, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a desk jockey in many ways now at this point in my life, but um, I just loved being outside. So I would just go get a fishing rod or a gun and just take off. And I had family that owned a little bit of property, not much, but just enough for me to go stretch my legs and, and spend some time alone, you know, watching whatever was around me, paying attention to the woods and and that's how that's how I learned. Um, I made a lot of mistakes, a ton of mistakes. I still do, but I'm I made a lot of mistakes, and but I never got frustrated and down about it. I you know I would just say you know I'll, I'll do better next time. And I look back on some of the things I did and some of the failures I had as a hunter. And I laugh because <laughs> it was just you know stupid. Some of the the things I tried or some of the techniques that I thought would work. And they didn't, and that's fine, but it was, those were all, you know, teaching moments. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and kind of to expand on that question. So uh, as you're basically learning the ropes yourself and kind of doing the trial and error, uh, at what point do you feel like you started incorporating your, your analytical mind? I, I mean, I would assume at some point, uh, based on the direction that you went with your profession, you tied that over into your your hunting career and, and your hunting journey as well. Yeah, it was a, it was when I was in grad school. That's when I when I started studying turkeys specifically. Although I did work with some other animals, when I started spending time in the field, pretty much all year. So I would I would start trapping in January, and I was stuck in the field until August and I lived and breathed everything about the field work I was doing. That's when I started really stepping back and, and thinking I could do a little bit different, you know, method here when it comes to tackling this particular hunt. Um, I also met some people in grad school. You know, as you can imagine, you get into graduate school in a wildlife program and you meet you meet some people that don't hunt, but you also meet some people that are just fanatical hunters. And, mm -hmm. and I was fortunate to meet some folks who now are, are, are well recognized in the wildlife hunting community that, that shared a passion that I did, but they had different experiences. I, I had a couple of 
of friends that were big waterfowl hunters that had cut their teeth and you know some of the best places in North America I, I had one colleague that was to this day probably one of the best fishermen I've ever been around and when you're around people that are really good at what they do and they're you're willing to listen to them and they're willing to listen to you you can really cut and you know shorten your learning curve and and you know dramatically and that's what I was lucky enough to be able to do and as I got older and continued to do research I just kind of made myself step back sometimes and say okay now that you're seeing that on a computer screen how do you you know how do you relate that back to your own experiences and what I've realized is what I see in the data that I collect I've experienced in many many cases I've you know, I've been blindsided by turkeys that uh, that did things just like what I'm seeing on a computer screen, or I've hunted deer that, that when I looked at how I ended up killing them, and then I look at a GPS data set of, of a buck, and I look at some of the strategies he used to navigate his, his world, it all kind of comes full circle for me, and I realize that I can I can improve myself as a hunter by paying close attention to some of the information that my you know that that we collect as scientists and it's been it's been really rewarding as a hunter to be able to look through both lenses. Yeah, no, for sure, and I I think you're 100 percent right. Uh, I mean, Grant and I both have backgrounds in wildlife biology, and we're both hunters, obviously. But being able to decipher that data and translate it to the timber, I think, is what is really the game changer there. And with what you're doing, kind of with what your platform and sharing the science and and then transforming it in a way for the person that might not be in the science world to be able to digest that information and then use those tactics, I think is tremendous. And I'd love to see some more of that kind of stuff throughout various aspects of uh, the science community. Um, but it's like you said, Sometimes you have people that are that are in the science community that are hunters and some are not. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so let's let's start get going down the rabbit hole of uh, the turkeys. And this is one of my favorite questions. I guess will be the last icebreaker uh, that I like to ask my guests. What's one thing? What's one thing either about hunting or about turkey hunting that you know now that you wish you would have known ten? 20 years ago, uh, et cetera. Uh, I would say one that sticks out is failure is more impactful than success. Um, when I was young, I, I never really embraced failure. When I would make mistakes, I would try to learn from them but the older I get, and I did, but the older I get, the more I realize that the failures that I experience are much more impactful to me and memorable than the successes. And that may seem bizarre, but um, I think more about the battles I lost than the ones that I've won, um, whether it be deer hunting or turkey hunting or whatever, it, it's, it's getting my tail kicked that is that makes me laugh now and it didn't 30 years ago uh and i think that just speaks to the natural evolution that we all have as we 
as we progress in our hunting careers, we, you know, we, we move from these, you know, a younger person where the amount of animals that you take or, you know, can be, can be important to you. And then as you go through life, you realize that it's the experiences and the, you know, the camaraderie and the, just being outside and doing, you know, spending time with your friends or whatever it is that's more important to you. And, um, and I think once I got to that point, that's when I started really embracing failure. Um, again, as crazy as that may sound. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great point that everybody can learn from that failure can be the best teacher in the woods. And um, I guess the next point is what made you get your perch your interest in turkeys or made you want to get into studying turkeys? Yeah, I kind of fell into that opportunity, honestly. Um, so I, I got admitted into graduate school at, at Mississippi State. And when I was admitted, I was offered to I was offered the chance to work on several projects. And basically, I was told to, you know, take your pick. And the one that piqued my interest the most was was a, a turkey project. And um, what really hooked me on turkeys was the first one I, I captured. And I realized uh, how, how difficult it can be to catch turkeys. Also realized how much fun it is and how how complex that bird is. And once you start studying them and paying more attention to them, because you're forced to, I mean, you're, you're spending your entire year thinking about them, whether you're putting your hands on them or you're figuring out where their nest sites are, or you're tracking broods or you're doing whatever it is, you realize just how complex their world is. And that's, that's what hooked me on turkeys. Uh, and I, I've been very blessed because I've been able to study turkeys ever since then. That was 1993, and I've, I've had breaks in life that put me in a position to be able to do field research on turkeys every year since then, um, which has been really cool. And although I've studied a lot of other animals, my interest is, is certainly focused pretty squarely on, on turkeys these days. Did you, um, how long were you in Mississippi State? Did you work there any post-grad or you went straight to UGA? I actually went, um, I worked at MSU for about six and a half years. And as soon as I graduated with my PhD, I actually was offered a faculty position at Louisiana State University. And I went there for a decade. I, I was on the faculty there pretty much doing the same thing I'm doing now. Uh, for a decade, and then I then I was offered a position here at UGA, and I've been here for a decade as well. And um, what are some of the bit most important topics you think you've learned from studying turkeys that maybe the general public or a general hunter doesn't know that you feel like they should? Uh, you're trying to get me shot. Um, <laughs> I'd say I'd say one thing that I don't think many people may realize, and maybe they do, maybe they do, and I, uh, I'm just not aware of it, is it's just how, how complex the social structure is in this bird. I mean, this is an animal that has very defined structure in their world. 
and that structure in the form of, of pecking orders or dominance hierarchies, that, that's really impactful to this bird from the time they're hatched until they die. Um, it dictates everything about their day. And it, all you have to do is watch turkeys to know this. But I, I think that a lot of us turkey hunters, I mean, I know I'm in this situation. If, if I'm turkey hunting, I'm focused on calling a bird up and killing him. Um, and a lot of times we don't get to see the things that you get to see if you're just looking at turkeys and not so much hunting them. And um, these, these dominance hierarchies, I think, are much more complex than, than we've realized. Um, the other thing that I, I think is, has been impactful to me is just how different each turkey is and how they behave. Um, if you, you know, years ago, we used to look at the mean, like we would, you know, we'd collect a bunch of data and you'd look at the mean. The average home range size is whatever. The average distance moved is whatever. And what you see now that we have the technology to, to look at it is there aren't many average anythings. I mean, if you plot out movements of, um, of say turkeys in a day, you see that there's some birds that don't move much. There's some birds that move a lot. There's some birds that move in between. It's just all over the map how variable they are from one bird to the other. And as a hunter, that's really interesting to me because it, it just speaks to this notion as it, it kind of helps explain why turkey hunting can be so maddening sometimes because you're dealing with an animal that may behave very differently than any other animal in the population. I think that's part of what makes it so, you know, such a kind of an addictive sport, if you will, is because it's so unpredictable. That's really interesting. And um, when you talk about the social hierarchies, that was actually something that we had kind of built, built into our outline. But since you brought it up, uh, let's dive into that can of worms now. Uh, so when you, when you talk about social hierarchies, you're strictly meaning interaction from bird to bird, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, can you kind of discuss that a little bit and elaborate on some of maybe the findings that you've seen uh, in social hierarchies, because you, you got you basically got my wheel spinning now because I got a, a whole bunch of follow up questions and we'll go from there. Yeah, so so basically what what we know about social hierarchies is is basically that you know when when turkeys are are hatched they immediately start to posture, they start to uh, behave around each other in a way where it's clear they're, they're, they're trying to establish dominance. You see this with very young poults, um, you know, poults that are mounting one another, they're strutting for each other, um, they're aggressive towards one another, and that, that transitions throughout their life. So basically, you know, when a turkey is hatched, it, it's part of a brood, um, they're establishing, you know, dominance amongst each other. And then that brood combines with another brood. And that's why you see, say in late summer, you, you may see three or four hens that have 20 poults. You know, they've all amalgamated into this flock. They're, they're testing each other within 
and amongst you know each other um then those you know units end up transitioning into fall and winter flocks where you you see additional shuffling and you end up with this big group of birds that some of them may not know each other you know they haven't spent time around each other and, and that's actually what we're seeing with some of the genetics work that we were collecting is that within some of these big winter flocks some of these birds are related to each other but some of them are not and implying that they came from some part of the landscape where they were not part of that summer flock. They, they traveled from somewhere to get to that winter group and they don't really know the other birds that are around them. So that's why you see a lot of strife in, in winter flocks. You know, there's a lot of jockeying. If you look on social media, you see this a lot during the, the late winter where you've got groups of jakes that are neck wrestling and they're fighting. And, um, you know, these are birds that in many cases may not know each other and now they're in these groups together and they're you know they're fighting to establish who's going to be the dominant bird and and that just continues to transition throughout their lives and hens do the same thing hens have established hierarchies where there's a dominant hen and there's hens that are under her and um and if you watch turkeys you can see this very clearly y'all have seen this i mean you can very clearly see that dominance matters and um, that's what we do know. What we don't know, um, but we're getting we're, we're getting there, is we don't know exactly, you know, what happens when dominant birds are either lost or dominant birds, you know, shift home ranges or do different things that put them out of contact with the birds they've been around. That's something that's really hard to nail down. And the previous work that, that focused on that was observational work back many, many years ago where they could see all the birds. And that's really tough, you know, particularly for like Easterns and the Osceolas where you can't see them. You know, they're, they're living, in, living in, in forested areas and they're tough to observe. So there's some things we know and there's some things we just, we just don't know, but we're, we're trying, to, trying to better understand. So my follow-up question with that, well, I, I guess, two parts here real quick. Um, one, do you primarily see that that uh, hierarchy as in just turkeys or do you see that relatively in like all galliformes? Uh, and then my second question to that would be how much of that um, social hierarchy translate over into competition for resources? Yeah, so the answer to the first question is yes, you, you do see that in other species. I mean, you'll see dominance hierarchies and prairie chickens and, and some other galliforms. You see, you know, even species like fallow deer have, have social hierarchies that influence breeding, um, access to breeding and, and timing of, of reproduction. Um, as far as resource acquisition goes, yes, it, you can kind of see this with, with turkeys, you know, with with rank comes privilege if you will and you know dominant birds as they're foraging you, you can often see this that you know one bird in a winter flock finds something and the next thing you know somebody's running over there to to chase her off or um there's constant strife we also know that that based on research that was done many many years ago that the dominant females tend to breed first 
and that makes sense that you know you have a dominant hen within a group she's going to you know have first access to dominant toms that are around her so uh it, there does appear that social hierarchy it, you know it not only influences kind of their their day-to-day -day lives but it does influence other parts of their life such as you know resource acquisition breeding the timing of breeding etc I was going to ask when you're going back to talking about the winter flocks, has that study mostly been done on Easterns or have you done it on Merriams and Rios and birds out west where you see a winter flock that's twice the size of a flock of Easterns? Yeah, there's been work on winter flocks in, in most of the subspecies, but to your point, Grant, that, that is what you, yeah, when you get out west, you see that the winter flocks tend to be much larger than our flocks of Easterns. Um, and a lot of a lot of the work that's been done on kind of the social structure was done on Rios. So naturally, you know, the groups of males were bigger, the groups of females were bigger. Um, the suspicion is that you know turkeys function the same regardless of where they are. Um, there may or may not be some nuances that it's just going to it just takes time to study. Um, one thing that really hamstrings us in the east with Easterns is just our inability to observe them like you can, you know, groups out west. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I got a question for you. Uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts uh, from the past and you discussed and talked about habitat fragmentation and uh, the variability and the suitability, I guess, for seasonal habitat. Uh, I know I kind of want to break this question down into multiple parts again, but can you talk about what ideal turkey habitat looks like as far as on a spectrum of 365? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you are. Um, you know, as you move from one part of the, the species range to another, you see that what would be considered an ideal matrix of habitats can vary pretty dramatically. The common theme though is uh, a suitable roosting habitat, you know, fairly close to uh, early successional plant communities that are often disturbed where birds can forage and see above the vegetation. Um, you know, turkeys make a living by their vision in combination with, with a, an acute, albeit different sense of hearing. So they need to be able to see that first and foremost. So from a broader kind of 30,000 foot view, roosting habitat near quality foraging areas is important. And then, you know, once once nesting season starts, you know, at least hens, they transition into using things that appear very different than what they use the rest of the year. Um, but that's pretty much it, you know, for nesting season. They're using thicker, brushier, more dense vegetation. But once nesting season is over, they go back to using areas where they can see. Uh, so most of the turkey annual cycle for both sexes is spent hanging out in areas where they've got roosts nearby and they've got quality foraging areas where they can see. 
And going off that, I was going to talk a little about home ranges or what you found studying birds' home ranges. And a side part of that, does a home range shrink as a gobbler or hen ages? Um, we have not really looked too much into that. Um, and here's here's why. The technology that we have, we can we can only get a certain amount of time out of the the GPS units, although we're getting better with that. The technology is improving and we're getting to a point now where we can we can mark a bird and get years of data off of he or she. Um, this is what I suspect happened based on other animals that I've worked with and other animals in general. And that is in many species, as they get older, they, they shrink their home ranges because they become experienced to the point where they, they can access resources more efficiently than they have in the past. In other words, they learn to the point where they know exactly what they need to do to make a living. What throws the, a wrench in that for a turkey is that they're so gregarious. They spend so much time around each other. So in the winter, you know, you have a, a group of, let's say 20 or 30 birds. They require a lot of resources. You know, it takes a lot of fuel to run a flock of 30. Um, so I would suspect the pattern would not be as clear in turkeys as it is in, in many species particularly solitary species that, you know, forage alone. If you're foraging by yourself and all you have to do is handle yourself, then the better you become at your job, the more likely it is you could probably use less space. But again, with a bird that hangs around with other birds, um, I don't think the pattern would be that clear. That's something we'll, we will be able to answer in the not too distant future because the technology is there now. Sounds good. And kind of talking still about age and hierarchies, do you find like, say, the dominant gobbler, if he's not killed or harvested, will stay the dominant gobbler for several years in a row, or as the turkey ages, his dominance level may decrease? That makes sense? Yeah, that's another thing. We, we kind of have to lean back on, on work that was done years ago. Um, the research that was done many years ago suggested that um, if the dominant bird remained in place, unless he was injured or otherwise compromised, he remained the dominant bird for some period of time. And then eventually, you know, the law of averages catch up to him and either he gets his, his butt kicked or, or something happens and, you know, all bets are off. Um, the issue with, you know, with how long birds remain dominant, that's kind of a murky one. And we don't have a ton of data on that topic. Um, we also don't know, you know, when a dominant bird is lost, we don't know exactly what it looks like after that happens. Um, do the birds around him, do they, do any of those birds immediately become dominant in, in a short period of time and, and things progress from there? There's some evidence saying maybe that happens sometimes. And there's also evidence showing that, that it doesn't happen, that sometimes you know a dominant bird is removed and the birds around him take longer to sort things out and, and you know get, every, get everybody straight on where they stand. 
I, I honestly suspect it just varies a lot based on the condition of in, individual birds and how many other males are around them and, you know, all these things that we can't control and we can't possibly understand. That's one of those topics that, that very likely in some ways we will never fully understand. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I, I don't know. That, that's just a, that's a tough thing if you can't lay eyes on birds consistently. That's just a tough thing to get at. And it's, a, it's an interesting topic. It's one I think a lot about because we know that dominance matters. We just don't understand a lot about, you know, how things progress when dominant birds are lost. Yeah, that's an, you're, that got my wheel spinning too again. So, I mean, you take out a dominant bird, uh, there's so many variables in there. Does the, the population then just go through an entire restructure of the pecking order, like a, a total complete reestablishment? Uh, is like potentially gobbler number two, does he just move to number one? Uh, I would assume a lot of it has to be dependent upon the health of the birds. Uh, like you said, potentially the, um, would, I mean, would you say personality of the bird would play a role in that aspect too? Well, sure. I mean, yeah, aggressiveness and, you know, behavior. The, the research that was done years ago suggested that when the dominance hierarchy kind of fell apart, that they tore it all apart and restructured it. And you can, you can kind of see this in a group of turkeys, um, you know, as at a lesser scale, you see it when you shoot a bird sometimes and the other birds immediately start attacking him. But if you watch groups of toms, um, you'll, you'll often see a bird that for whatever reason decides to really pick a fight. And depending on how the fight starts progressing, other birds may start participating in the fight and the next thing you know, they're, they're collectively chasing a single bird all over the place and they're all fighting. And um, it's, just a, it's just a complex thing to, to get at. Um, I suspect that it, it varies a lot depending on how many males are there and what their body condition is, kind of in combination with their, you know, how aggressive they are. Because some of the research many years ago on captive birds showed that you could take a dominant bird out, like just remove him from the scene, if you will. And some, and there was this one study uh, where one of the toms that had been spending time with the dominant bird, he immediately, almost immediately, uh, his testosterone levels dramatically increased and he, his sperm production increased and he was hunky-dory. The other bird that was there never did. Um, kind of move up if you will he he remained in this pretty much the same physiological state that he was now you know why is that I mean presumably it's you know it's it's this dominance relationship that is influencing things that we don't fully understand if you look at some of the research on other species like in prairie chickens um when there was a, a study done many years ago, kind of a classic study on this. They went in and, and removed males from these leks. And when they did, at some point, they, you know, it, it mattered who you removed, not only who, but how many of, of those dominant birds were removed. And at some point, 
some females just delayed reproduction as if it was taking time for this, you know, these hierarchies to sort themselves out. And that's what some of the work on fallow deer showed as well, that, um, that there was a delay in reproduction depending on the degree of removal of, of dominant animals. Is that what happens in turkeys? We just, we don't know. Um, that's just one thing that we're, we're still trying to tease out. Um, and we'll get there eventually. And it, it just, it just takes time. And again, this is a, this is a tough topic to, to research because there's so many factors involved that we, that we can't control for. Right. That's, that's super fascinating to me because I mean, you think about that and then potentially the ripple effect beyond that. So if their uh, effectiveness of reproduction changes, that could potentially then change uh, the likelihood of success uh, for breeding then, correct? Maybe, maybe. And that's, that's one of the, you know, that's, that's, that's a hot topic right now. Um, you know, is there, are there potential reproductive consequences to, to removing dominant birds and really depending on when you remove them. And the answer is, we, we again, we just don't know. That It seems logical to me that at some level, it, it would be impactful. Um, you know, research done many, many years ago that is still widely cited, you know, noted that uh, the kind of the foolproof way of, of harvesting turkeys specifically was to do that at a point when most breeding was done. And then, and at that point, it didn't matter whether you were removing dominant birds or not. Um, and that, it, that's logical to me as well. I mean, it, if you're concerned about the dominance issue, then timing your harvest when it wouldn't matter who was removed makes sense. Um, but beyond that, you know, studying that in a, in a free ranging population is, it just, that's, that's a tough, it's a tough question to ask. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and even if you, you know, the thing is, and y'all know this, I mean, you turkey hunt, you can think you understand what you're seeing when, a, you know, let's just say three times you call them up and you shoot one of the birds and you, you think, well, I shot the bird that I think probably in, he was the most aggressive, he was gobbling, you know, whatever. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you did shoot the dominant bird in that group, but you don't really know <clears throat> unless you can observe the birds for some period of time. We really don't know with certainty. So it's just a, uh, it's just a hard thing to get, get a handle on. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it could have been a bird that uh, maybe the dominant Tom was locked up with hens and the, the second in, in command happened to bounce away. And that oh, yeah. was the one you called in. I mean, yeah, I, oh, yeah. there's a ton of different variables. You're 100% right. But yeah, and, and you see this with Rios. I, I've, I've seen this with Rios where I was watching a bird, you know, that was that was standing beside a hen and she would squat and she would hop up and she would squat and she would hop up and he was not going to leave her side. And the other times that were there, they were they were not interested in dealing with him at all. And that's the birds I ended up calling away. Um, now, had I not been able to just happen to glance down that little fence row and see that, I would have had no idea. It's, uh, 
you know, because you can't see the birds in most cases. Right, right. All right, I want to kind of change topics here a little bit, and I want to talk about seasonal migration. Um, I mean, we're recording this on March 2nd. Turkey season's right around the corner. Uh, Florida's already opened up. Uh, can you kind of talk about the, the findings or the studies that you've conducted? Because uh, I think that is one of the things that I would say for as far as inexperience goes as a as a turkey hunter, understanding that turkeys migrate from location to location, um, similar to a whitetail and where you find birds in the winter, obviously you may not find them there in the spring and that's all dependent upon resources, but uh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so, so turkeys do, depending on where you are, you know, if you're in Eastern range, you know, they shift their home ranges quite a bit from winter to spring. And that's for several reasons. One being that their their resource requirements change. You know, they they shift from eating primarily acorns, you know, and, and in other areas, waste grain or, or whatever to moving towards areas where they're going to breed. And that, you know, in my neck of the, of the woods here in Georgia, that that often has them shift, you know, a mile, maybe more. Um, they're, they abandon a part of their home range and they're gone. You know, they were there today and they literally are gone tomorrow. And that's what we're seeing actually right now, March the 2nd. Uh, Monday, we caught a group of five hens, which that was the last trapping that we needed to do. We were finished at this point. Um, but those, you know, those five hens, they were part of a larger winter group a week ago and now they're you know now they're starting to split up and move around and and i suspect they're gone from that property in another week they're, they'll be completely gone and you you wouldn't know they existed um you see that very common in the easterns you you see it to some extent in rios it's very dramatic in merriams in many populations they'll move you know there's some research on merriams showing they'll move 20 or 30 miles from their winter habitat to their reproductive habitat so it really depends on where you are but the analogy you know here today going tomorrow really does apply to turkeys john i want to cover a little about food sources and kind of the same without migration i mean could you speak on a little bit the food sources you cover and how they may change from one season to another in like region to region on mass crops or what kind of crops farmers have in the fields and that kind of type deal yeah, yeah. What you see in the in the turkey world is once it once we get in the fall and winter, they usually are you know the only thing they're focused on in the fall and winter is staying alive and eating. So you tend to see that they use roost sites that give them access, red you know quick access to food sources. They use dependable food sources. If you're in an area where there's a lot of waste grain, you may see the birds in the same place day after day after day. And, and if you're in my neck of the woods here, you know, if it's like last year where literally there was an acorn under every leaf, um, birds didn't move that much. And they were really hard to catch last, last winter. They, they did move. And when they did move, they would wholesale move. Like they would, they would use a hardwood bottom for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden they were gone completely. Um, this year with very few acorns on the ground, they, they're 
once they find a food source, they're sticking tight to it. You know, they, they're much more easier to pattern when, when it's a year like this. And, and then they shift almost entirely to plant and insect matter. You know, once spring comes and things green up, you start seeing plants that are budding out. You have species that are producing soft mast. You have insect, you know, communities that are flourishing. That's when they shift their diet. And, you know, they'll, they'll use that same succulent vegetation all the way through summer. They start eating all sorts of invertebrates. You'll see them eating things like, you know, frog larvae and crayfish. I mean, you, you name it, turkeys will eat a lot of different things. And then you rinse and repeat, you know, at the end of the summer, early fall, when, when things are rank and nothing is as succulent as it was, uh, they start transitioning back to, to mast and, you know, and waste grains. And some of that, like right now here where I'm at, you know, it's, it's damn near supposed to be 80 degrees Saturday. So we've got, we've got plants that are you know, winter plants that are, that are green and succulent. And you'll see birds shifting off of acorns and, and grain uh, earlier because they don't need the energy. It's warm, uh, so they don't need the carbs, if you will. So, so weather can dictate that to some degree as well. Yeah, I know I've been watching a winter flock. I guess it's still winter flock. This group probably 40 or so birds and I live down the lower part of South Carolina and kind of near Webb where we all have researched and they've been feeding in a peanut field eating the peanuts that the weren't harvested recently in the past few evenings and all the birds have been out in that peanut field eating and I've harvested one two springs ago and his crop was slammed full of peanuts so I guess they can do with what they've got left over in the ag fields too. Yeah 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 I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff in their in their crops and one thing about turkeys it's funny is when they find something they can readily access, they gorge themselves on it. So you'll you'll often see a crop that's just full of, you know, one thing. Uh, but I've also seen crops that what had what appeared to be twenty different things in them. Um, I think it just depends on the bird and the situation. If they can, they can really stockpile on something that they seem to do it. During during the breeding season, how much does uh, food play a role in um, habitat selection versus, um, versus breeding. Yeah. So you're talking about like during the nesting season? I, I would, I would talk, say probably before the nesting season, um, right before like peak breeding. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I think it depends on the sex because, you know, hens in that time of year. So what hens do is they, they split up out of these winter flocks and they end up in these, these smaller social groups where they're, let's just say, you know, there's, there's 20 hens in a big winter flock and they become four groups of five, just to make it simple. Now you've got this group of five that's moving around and they are a, kind of a breeding social group, if you will. At that time, they're about to transition into the breeding period and then they're going to be excuse me, laying, and then they're going to be incubating. So when they're in the, <clears throat> excuse me, when they're in their laying sequence, food is critical. I mean, they, they have to find areas where they can readily access resources. Toms, on the other hand, 
you know, you, you know as well as I do, a lot of times they're shadowing hens or they're ending up in hen, you know, in areas where hens want to be. And that's when I've noticed, and I've you've probably seen the same thing. I, I've killed some toms where it looked like they found something that they could feed on and they just went to town on it. I, in fact, I killed a bird a few years ago that had been eating yellow top, basically buttercups. And he, it, he was just chock-a-block full of them. Um, and I've seen other situations like that too. I, uh, I saw Tom that was killed many years ago that was full of crayfish. Um, he actually had waded out into some water according to the hunter and, and, had, and I've seen him do that and, and were, was catching crawfish. Um, so I think it just depends on the sex. From the hen's perspective, until the day she, well, even when she's incubating, she's using areas where she knows she can forage successfully and when they start incubating that becomes even more of an issue because when they leave the nest each day to go feed they need to go somewhere where they can find readily available resources and and do it quickly and then return to the nest so um, the hens i think are much more driven around you know foraging resources than the toms are so if I was uh, if I was an inexperienced hunter and I was going out into the timber to, to scout for turkeys and for locations to set up, based on what you're saying there, if I understand it correctly, is don't overlook the aspects of food that hens would be congregating in because they will ultimately end up attracting gobblers there at some point or another. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if I, I've said this, I don't know this maybe this is just me but I've I've always when I've hunted tried to figure out um two things where are birds roosted and where do they want to be um I think in many cases being where they want to be is more important than anything if you know places where birds are headed where you see birds routinely where I know that birds are foraging through this area or they're using some portion of you know this property and I'm seeing them feed if they're doing that consistently then there's a resource there that's important to them um I try to when I scout if I have time I mean if I'm if I'm scouting you know I'm hunting out of state or something that you, you often don't have time to do this but on properties that I hunt here I pay a lot of attention to where birds want to go um and sometimes, you know, sometimes you aren't on a bird's agenda when he flies down. But at nine o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning, you'll suddenly become part of his agenda. If you're where he wants to be or where he knows he's going to interact with some hens uh, because they're out foraging, then sometimes that can be a good fallback when things don't go as planned, you know, right out of the tree. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, I feel like... Um... At least this is how I perceive things. Uh, when when you hear about turkey tactics, uh, it's usually try to kill them right out of the tree and then chase gobblers around all day long based on where they're gobbling at. Never once, or I shouldn't say never once, but I don't hear it very often about setting up like with what you said, where they where they potentially want to be at a later time. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
All right, and can I talk about roost sites and selection? What do you think goes into a turkey selecting their roost sites, and what are they? What are the factors that determine where birds may roost? That is a tough one. Here, here's what we think is going on. Um, you know, turkeys roost. Let's let's just think about toms. Um, you know, they they roost in the spring. There's two things that they're concerned with. One is not dying, and two is projecting sound. Um, and what we see with with toms is that at least Easterns, they may have six, seven, eight uh, roost sites in their home range. And there are some of those roosts that appear to be more important than other ones. Why that is, we don't know. Um, in other words, what is it about some of these roosts they use more often that differentiates them? We don't know, but I, I actually have a student that's looking at that now. Um, we think that most roost sites are chosen for safety and for sound attenuation. Basically this notion that I want to call from areas where the sound will travel and not be chewed up by the environment. Um, what goes into a good roost site that we're digging that out now, you know, if you go out in the West, particularly in Rio range, it's pretty easy to see. You know, cottonwoods in many areas are, you know, a preferred roost tree and where there's cottonwoods, you see birds roosting there. When you get over where, where I am, you know, an Eastern Tom, he may literally have thousands of trees in his home range that are, he could roost in but he still roost in six, eight, 10 places, you know, religiously, although they don't often do that night after night, but they do use the same roost, you know, through time. That's a question we we're digging at, at, at right now. Interestingly enough, what some of the work we have done, um, trees that appear to be really good roost trees aren't used and trees that don't look any different to me than many other trees are used sometimes so I think there is more to it than we than we grasp um, I don't think it in many cases is the tree itself it's the surrounding environment around that tree that facilitates them being feeling safe and being able to project sound. And that that pattern changes as you get towards the summer. And what they do in the summer is they, they scale back and they only use a few roof sites. So at that point, that implies to me that since they're no longer gobbling and trying to attract attention, just roost where you feel safe. So what we're trying to do now is tease apart those differences and see what is there different, if anything, between a spring and a summer roost site? I suspect it's going there. There are going to be some things we just haven't teased it out yet. Kind of going off that, I know you hear a lot of hunters think they're hunting the same turkey two or three, four or five days in a row or the whole season because it's roosting in the same spot. And I've heard you say before that the research has proven that's probably not the same turkey roosting in that tree every day. If you can go over that a little bit. Yeah, that that's that's one that gets people, you know, claiming you don't know what you're talking about. But um, when you look at the GPS data, 
if you hear a bird in the same place two or three nights in a row, you think you're hearing the same bird, it's more likely that you're not hearing the same bird. Um, what they do in some cases, now there are some homebodies. We've had, we've had times we marked that literally roost in the same place every night, but it's not many. It's a, it's a low percentage. More often what happens is he hangs out in the same spot maybe a night or two, and then he moves a half mile to the north, or he goes three quarters of a mile to the southwest, and he roosts there one night, and then he moves somewhere else and he roosts, and then he spends two nights somewhere else, and then he's back to where he started. Meanwhile, while he's gone, it's very common to have another tom come and roost in that same spot. Now, whether they use the exact same tree or not is unclear, but they end up in the same general spot within 15 or 20 yards, um, and they gobble there. So what, what I think back to in my many, many times of getting totally screwed from a bird that I thought was the same bird is just the notion that sometimes you think he's going to behave the same way he did yesterday, and he doesn't. Well, in some cases it may be because it's not the same bird. It's a different bird that has a different agenda than the one you were hunting the day before. That's my excuse for every time I get screwed. And, you know, every time one flies down the opposite direction of where I thought he was going to, that's, that's the excuse I, I tell myself. Different bird. And then a lot of times it is. So when you said that, uh what you would think is a good roosting tree. Can you kind of describe what that in your mind looks like for, for our audience? It really depends, man. Um, I'll give you some examples. Um, we have a study on one site where a kind of envision in your head, um, longleaf pine, low country, South Carolina looking kind of stuff pretty pine savanna type um, big hardwoods and areas around water and most of the roost on that study site were in the pines those birds actually would get up in those longleaf way up in those longleaf depending on where you know where the roost was and they wouldn't use some of the hardwoods that were there that looked like great roost to me and then you go to a different study site and like, for instance, one of the places that I work here, we see a lot of roosting is right on the transition of hardwoods and pines, um, you know, right, right there on the edge um, where a bird could fly down low or he could fly up top. So we see a lot of that. So I think what makes a good roost really depends on the site and it, back to what we were talking about before you know given that we know that sound propagation is important i suspect things like topography and you know things aspect slope matter too we just haven't had taken the time to tease that out and honestly that's the most that's one of the biggest data sets i have we get roost locations on every bird every night mm -hmm. um it's just sitting down and taking the time to go through that data set, which is massive. Um, I have, again, I have a student doing that now. 
but he'll only be able to scratch the surface of it. I, I could probably spend the rest of my career doing nothing but looking at roost data and writing articles about what turkeys do and the strategies they have. Um, it's that much information. And now the technology we have, which we've started using this year, is we can very clearly see when they fly up and when they fly down. So we can, we can tell with certainty that bird flew up at 7.35 or he, he touched the ground at 6.52 or whatever. Um, so now that's going to open up a whole nother set of questions as to how variable toms are in how they fly down and fly up. Are have you started sifting through that data at all yet? We have not. We have gotcha. not. I can't wait. I can't wait to see some of that because I, I suspect that there are some birds that just have a different strategy mm -hmm. and they may have a different strategy based on where they are in their home range. So in other words, if they're at this particular roost, they may have a different strategy than that they're at some other roost. I don't know that, but I, I suspect that we will see something like that, that it's much more, as we've seen in all of the data we've used, it's more complicated than you than you think when you, you know, it first rattles around in your head. Yeah, and I guess this kind of ties into my next question. Um, with, with the collection of that data, um, how much does, and obviously you don't know the answer to this, but uh, how much does hunting pressure play into fly down times? Oh yeah. I mean, based on my own observation, you know, I've had birds that I'm quite certain heard me or saw me or sensed that I was there and they, you know, they, they didn't fly down. Mm -hmm. I hunted a bird one morning that, you know, after nine o'clock, I had to go to work. He was still sitting there gobbling. Uh, I talked to somebody the other day that um, on Monday that hunted a bird last year that sat in a tree until after 11 o'clock gobbling. And I just wonder, you know, some of this we'll never know with certainty. It'll just be speculation. But, you know, it, it makes sense if you think about why birds roost, you know, back to that safety and sound. Well, if they don't feel safe, why fly down? Because in their world, the safest place for them is in a tree. Um, and I've also had birds that flew up before they got to me and just picked me apart. And then, you know, the hunt was over. I've had that happen several times. Um, you know, is that a strategy that bird has where when he gets close to what he thinks is a hen, that he hops up in a tree picks the situation apart. If he sees her, then he's good. I don't know, but it makes a lot of sense to me because that's a place that they feel comfortable. And, and piggybacking off of that, do you see competition for roosting sites? No, not that we can, not that we can determine. Um, you don't really see any issues with roost availability either in the Easterns. When, it's when you get out you know, Rios are really the subspecies that where roost availability becomes a real concern. And that's because of losses of cottonwoods and riparian areas where you, you, there are some concerns in parts of Rio range that there may not be enough roost um, to support birds in places. But we don't see that with the Easterns. Gotcha. 
And kind of to change subjects, going off a little bit about Goblink and talk about some of the Goblin chronology studies you've done and what different factors you found that influence the turkey's goblin. Yeah, so we're we're studying Goblin. That's a big piece of the data we're collecting now. Um, we're we're basically we we have these we have these recording units to start recording March the first. So we're we're two days in now. They they collect all ambient sound in the mornings, and then we we process the data with a with a machine learning tool, and it pulls out the gobbles, if you will. Um, and what we're doing is we're looking at daily activity, but we're also we can map out chronology. In other words, the peaks and valleys that you see in gobble you know gobbling activity, and what we see. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, honestly. Um, there is a very close positive relationship between gobbling and the onset of, of laying and, and incubation. In other words, um, as hens get close to the laying sequence and incubation, gobbling really ramps up. Um, and we also see a very strong negative relationship between hunting activity and gobbling, where as hunting, when hunting gets started, particularly on heavily hunted sites, you, you do see these declines in gobbling activity and, and they can be dramatic declines depending on the amount of pressure or they cannot. We, we have some data on hunted sites that are lightly hunted that don't look a whole lot different than non-hunted sites because the pressure is just so low that, you know, you don't see this dramatic drop off like you do on heavily hunted sites. So those are the two things that, you know, hen reproductive behaviors and hunting, those are the two big drivers of gobbling activity. Whether we do see weather variables that matter, but the magnitude that they affect gobbling pales in comparison to, to hunting and, and hen behaviors. Gotcha. And kind of talking about hunter interaction, I know you've done a few studies on hunter and turkey interaction and how pressure plays a role in turkey's behavior. Just for the what you've seen through research, how do you think pressure has an aspect? There's no doubt they sense pressure and they react to it. How they react to it seems to be highly variable from one time to the other. Um, some of them hunker down and deal with it. Some of them pack up and head to the hills. Uh, we see birds on public land shift to private land. We see birds that move a mile down the road and hang out for the rest of the season. And we see some birds that just literally deal with it. They just change their behavior. They don't use a lot of area or they avoid areas near roads. That, that we see pretty commonly that birds will, you know, start avoiding areas near roads. They'll, you know, they'll move to areas where access is limited and they will spend more time farther away from areas you and I use to access the woods. We see that really commonly on, on our sites. Makes sense, you know, just move away from pressure and keep being a turkey. Do you see a, uh, a reduction in breeding uh, when, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Do, do you see a uh, a reduction 
in potentially uh, successful clutches uh, due to hunting pressure. So for example, like because of the hunting pressure, you're kicking toms down the road or you're kicking hens down the road. And if that's not the case, are you potentially seeing both species or not both species, both male and female move areas? Uh, the first, I'll start with the second part. Yeah, we do see that both sexes do react to pressure. Both, both males and females will react to pressure, which is, which isn't rocket science. I mean, you see that in, in a lot of hunted species, there's research on all sorts of critters being published showing that, that, you know, both sexes in many cases perceive pressure and they, they react accordingly. Um, the link between, you know, really heavy pressure and any reproductive consequences, we don't, we're not there yet. Um, what we do see is, uh, on our, on our heavily hunted sites, we do see that nesting season is, is, is longer, um, than on we're studying one large non-hunted site now. And based on the data we've collected thus far, it just looks like nesting season is taking longer. Now, why is that? We're not exactly sure. Is it that, you know, some birds are being removed and that's, that's causing some hens to delay? Maybe. Is it just the disturbance thing? Maybe. Is it some interaction between all of that and some things that we don't understand? Maybe. Um, that's a question. We will get at that question because it, in the not too distant future, we'll have enough information on, on hunted sites that, that are hunted under different scenarios if you will and we'll have enough information on non-hunted populations where we can we can start trying to see if there's anything to that question there may not be but but maybe there is we just need more information and more time when you see an extended nesting uh season do you see uh, survivability or or mortality mortality rates with pulse increase what's that again when you see an extended nesting season, do you see the mortality of poles increase? Um, not, not really. I mean, right now, honestly, um, brood survival is so poor on many of our sites anyway. Um, and it always has been, really. I mean, if you go back and look at, at research done 20 years ago, it showed the same trends. I mean, yeah, nest success is lower now than it was then, but brood survival has always been pretty poor. Um, there were some exceptions. I mean, there have been some studies showing in some areas that brood survival was pretty high, but if you look across the species, you know, range from a research perspective, it's tough being a, a pole and it always has been. So we don't, we have not noticed that pattern, no. Okay, gotcha. All right, um, kind of transitioning here, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, uh, you talked a little bit about the turkey agenda in one of the podcasts that I listened to. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was along the lines of, uh, a turkey's gonna do what a turkey's gonna do, and it's not so much cut and dry when you're hunting them, 
can can you kind of talk about the Turkey agenda as far as um, what you particularly mean and maybe if there's a little science behind it as well? Yeah, I mean, bottom line is this bird, they they have an agenda when they fly down. Um, sometimes, you know, if you you have a bird, he he's used to going in a certain direction and he knows that if he's at a certain point in his range at eight o'clock, he's going to likely encounter some hens. Well, that's where he's headed. And, and maybe you can call him away. You know, we all, we certainly do. I mean, I, I have, I'm, I'm sure y'all have too. You know, you had a bird that you struck the right nerve and he came to you, but a lot of times, you know, they head in the opposite direction or they skirt you or they do something else and they move on. And I, I, that's what I mean by an agenda. It's just, you weren't on the agenda first thing. Sometimes their agendas will change. And um, one of the, I, I hunted a group of Rios some, I don't know, four or five years ago that were the poster children for the, this, this analogy. Um, they were going where they were going and it didn't matter what I did. Um, and I ended up just figuring out that I was either going to have to be where they were going, or I was going to have to intersect them on the route they were taking to get there because I was not calling them away from that route. They gobble and gobble and gobble and gobble, and they would come towards me, but they had a routine and they had apparently according to the landowner they had been doing it for a number of days that's their agenda i ended up killing one of those birds but i did it by figuring out after two days of getting my tail handed to me that the only way i was going to kill one of those birds at least on the three-day trip i had available to me was to become part of their agenda and that's that's what i did gotcha i i, I think that's something that is oftentimes uh not looked at or not potentially not even thought about, especially for inexperienced turkey owners. Uh, did you have a question, Grant? Yeah, I got one. Um, I know you talk a lot about um, maybe season starting to earlier, gobblers being harvested too early before the peak breeding season in a lot of the southern states. And I wanted to ask you, does the amount of gobblers harvested really affect the population much if they're taken during the right time and after peak breeding? Well, um you're definitely trying to get me shot um that's a that question if if you just read the science and what has been reported for years 40 years actually we've known we being turkey researchers turkey managers have known for 40 plus years that the most conservative way to harvest turkeys is to limit either dramatically limit harvest early in the spring or to time the harvest in a way where most of it occurs after peaks and in incubation. And the reason for that is simple. If you remove toms after or at, at or after peaks and in incubation, there's some segment of them that's expendable. Um, the, what that percentage is, for many, many decades, it was assumed to be 30%, meaning 30% um, of your toms could be removed after peaks and in incubation, 
and you would have no long-term effects on the population. Uh, the problem with that mentality is, and that assumption is, although it's based on the biology of the bird, it overlooks something that's really critical. And that is, those, those recommendations and those assumptions were based on populations of turkeys that had production three times higher than what our southern populations are showing right now. And that work was predicated under a harvest rate, meaning the percentage of toms that are killed was 15%. And now you factor in where we are right now, and we're seeing less than two poults per hen produced across the South. We're seeing harvest rates on some properties exceeding 50% in a year. Not all, but some. So you factor in lower numbers, like we're not making as many turkeys and we're killing a lot of turkeys. And in many situations, although you know there, there aren't data to prove this, but I think we all would agree as turkey hunters, it's easier to be a turkey hunter now. It's easier, it's easier to kill a turkey in some situations now than it was 20 years ago. We have incredible camouflage. We have incredible calls. We have, you know, the ability to shoot at longer distances. We have decoys. We have all these things that influence harvest, but we don't really understand exactly how. But I think it, to me, it's logical that we've known that harvest matters forever. It's just that we were in a situation where there were turkeys everywhere and, and agencies gave us opportunities. They, they allowed us to shoot you know, a lot of birds, a high bag limit. They allowed us to shoot birds earlier. And they did that because they wanted to give us the opportunity to go out there and do it. And now, you know, I think a lot of agencies have faced the realization that you know, populations have declined and they, they try to seek ways of impacting populations at a broad scale. And unfortunately, one of the things that agencies change is harvest regulations. And it's not just turkeys, I mean, it's everything. Um, you know, bag limits and season links and timing. You, you, can, you can start trout fishing this time. You can start squirrel hunting this time. I mean, all of that is, I mean, it, it, turkeys are managed under the same auspices. Um, so I, this isn't something that was just suddenly realized guys. I mean, and I get asked this a lot and, and people get mad at me for saying it. And I, I, I'm sorry, but we've known this for 40 plus years. We've known how to harvest turkeys. Managers and biologists have been saying it for years. It's just that we're now in a situation where agencies are having to rethink the way they do things. And that's a contentious and, you know, topic as it should be. We all want opportunities. I mean, I'm a turkey hunter. I want to be able to go turkey hunting and I want to do it the same as I've always done it. And when you tell me I can't, I don't like that, but we're living under different realities now than we were 20 years ago. It's just no question. Yeah. Sometimes the, uh, the stakeholders desire and the science don't exactly match up. Well, and you know, I get it, man. I mean, we should all get, I mean, we're all, you know, turkey hunters are, Turkey hunters are a passionate bunch of people and 
we all want to be able to go and we all want to be able to chase this passion that defines much of our year. Um, and when you can't do that, you know, being told you can't do that, that's an unpopular thing to be told and it's contentious and it's, and of course, I, and I, I hate it, honestly, I hate it because what you see is you get finger pointing and, and accusations and people are mad and none of that does anything to help the resource. It, it does nothing. Um, finger pointing and, and complaining to each other and fighting on social media, it does nothing to help the bird. Um, I get it. I understand the frustration, but at the end of the day, I, I just step back and try to think about, is that really going to help the bird? And I think in, in a lot of cases, the answer is no. So I have a question for you. Um, so being here that I'm from Pennsylvania, um, some of the new research that has been coming out new, if you will, um, from Dr. Lisa Williams is the effect of disease on turkey poults and specifically the West Nile virus. Mm -hmm. How, what are you seeing as far as disease or even if you have uh, any information on the West Nile uh, virus and how that's affecting uh, the uh, survive the survivability of pulse. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and there's there's actually a lot of research ongoing now where people that are capturing birds, you know, are collecting blood and looking at prevalence of West Nile, uh, as well as other uh, potential issues such as you know pox virus and lymphoproliferative disease and these other things that, that could affect these birds. The, the disease issue is a tough sell because, you know, a sick bird is predator fodder, you know? I mean, you know, right. a bird that's a little slower or is carrying a high parasite load or, or, or whatever, you know, we don't know about a lot of those birds that die, but what research is coming out now is showing that in some cases, a lot of birds, you know, are positive for West Nile. A lot of birds are positive for some other, you know, pathogens and diseases. We just don't know what effect that's having at a broad scale. You know, we've known turkeys die from disease forever. You know, we've known that. It's just getting, linking that to a population level effect is tough. But there's a lot of work ongoing now. It's just going to take, it's just going to take a little bit of time. Gotcha. Uh, well, we've been, we're almost at an hour and a half here. I mean, that time flew by. Grant, did you have any uh, other questions before we let the doc go? Um, yeah, I believe that'd be it. Well, if you want to cover real quick, I know you've covered this for people on our podcast who might not have listened. Everybody wants to talk about aging turkeys and spur length and that quickly. You want to talk about how y'all discovered for your research that spurs really are irrelevant to the age of a turkey. Yeah, you're hitting all the contentious ones today. Um, yeah, spur length is, it's a contentious topic. The bottom line is what we see is when we, when we band a jake, and I'm talking thousands of birds, not a dozen. When we band jakes and we recover those birds in year, later years, or when we capture a bird with say a half inch spur or a three quarter inch spur, and we ban them and they're killed two or three years later, what do we see? And what we see is that 
it's almost impossible to predict what length spur you're going to be looking at. We have we've banded jakes that were killed as two-year-olds that had inch and a quarter spurs. We've banded jakes as that as two-year-olds had three-quarter inch spurs or one-inch spurs. We banded jakes that were shot as three-year-olds that have half-inch spurs, an inch and a half spur, and it's all over the place. Now, is a bird with a three-quarter inch spur likely to be a two or three-year-old? Yes, likely. Can you look at that spur length and say he is two years old? No. That's just, it's that simple. There's just too much variation in it. Um, and we just literally have hundreds of birds that we've seen this in. Um, there's just no way of looking at a spur on the ground and saying he's two years old or he's three years old or he's four years old. It's just not reliable. And you see that across whitetails too. I mean, with, with. Sure. Look at tooth well. wear. Look yeah, at tooth exactly. wear. I mean, yeah. I mean, so many things go into tooth wear. You know, I teach this in class. If you want to accurately age deer using tooth wear and replacement, you better stop when you get about three or four, because beyond that, you have no idea. And you know, as research has shown that too, look, you know, pulling incisors and, and looking at looking at cement manuli and all these things, it, it fails for whitetails. It fails for a number of species. Um, so it, it's not surprising to me that it fails for for turkeys, but but people sure get upset about it when you <laughs> when you when you tell them that. That's funny. All right, Jack, uh, we're going to let you go here. Uh, we've taken up enough of your time. I really appreciate you uh, hopping on the podcast and going over all this information. I think it's going to be great for the listeners, and it's really going to help them in the turkey woods. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, would you mind plugging your resources as far as where our audience can follow you on social media, where they can see some of the research that you're doing, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, if, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, if you just search on wild turkey doc, that's just wild turkey doc, you'll, you'll find posts that I make every week. Um, uh, on Facebook, it's just my name. If you just type in Michael Chamberlain, you'll, you'll find me. Um, I don't post much personal stuff on Facebook anymore. Um, it just signs stuff. I, I do post some personal stuff on Instagram. Um, but but not a lot on the other two platforms but anyway um i put science stuff out every week on all three platforms and i'm actually in the process now of, of putting a website together and a youtube channel where i can i can highlight some of the stuff i do and some of the work that other researchers are doing that people may not know anything about um and i'm, I'm actually going to archive all of my posts on that site so that people can go back and if they're not on social media, they can still get access to some of the science. So, so yeah, that's where you find me now. And you can always email me or, you know, or reach out to me. I try to, I try to respond to messages as, as quickly as I can. It, sometimes it takes time. Absolutely. And I'll make sure that I have uh, all that information in the show notes and uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain. I mean, while his title is the wild turkey doctor, he is, uh, it looks like an absolute outdoor fanatic across all spectrum. So um, maybe if you have whitetail questions or, or any other questions across the board, 
it's, it looks like you'd be able to handle those as well. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I, guess, I, I guess I shouldn't put it uh, put it out there too quickly, but um, it does look like you are the overall outdoorsman, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love being outside, man. I love I love hunting. Love love it. That's that's my passion. All right, awesome. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Good talking to you guys.